0: Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices, about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are, again, sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review and sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk about Soho and the films that are set there. My name is Dominic Delaghi, And I have a slightly different type of episode for you this month, in that there are no Soho films on the agenda. I know that's the whole raison d'etre of the show, but after one of my original excellent guests had to drop out for personal reasons, I decided to go down a slightly different path for this episode. The theme I did have planned was France and the French in Soho, and so for the first segment of the show I spoke to a gentleman who was brought up partly in London's glittering West End and partly in Normandy. The reason for our conversation is that he is the son of a writer, you could call her a social historian, called Madeline Henry, who was French and she documented life in and around Soho for several decades, including a memoir of her family's time living in a tiny Mayfair flat at the height of the Blitz. Confusingly, she wrote under her married name of Mrs. Robert Henry, and I'd never quite understood why this was. Was it some kind of anti-feminist statement, I thought? But her son, who is also called Robert Henry, explained to me why that decision was made, and it was for a very interesting reason. And quite apart from the subject of his parents, Robert has a fascinating story all of his own. Nowadays, the stars of 1940s films are, sadly, a little thin on the ground. But in 1948, Robert was a child actor who starred in one of the best and most well-remembered British films of that decade. We'll be hearing about that in the second part of the show, and to round off this slightly weird episode, I'll be previewing our upcoming three-part special about Jesse Matthews, Soho's very own megastar who was born on Berwick Street. I do enjoy a good old rummage in a second-hand bookshop. A few months ago, I came across an interesting-looking, battered old book with a very fragile dust jacket called A Village in Piccadilly. Written during the darkest days of the Second World War by a French author I had, to my shame, never heard of, a Mrs. Robert Henry. It's a fascinating account of the author's time living in a minuscule rented flat on Shepherd Market in Mayfair with her English husband Robert and their young son Bobby. It features many conversations with members of refugee communities that had been displaced by the war and it's a precious snapshot of a very specific time in London's history. And by the way, don't go thinking that Madeline must have been a member of the landed gentry to be living in Mayfair, because she certainly wasn't that. As she explains in the book, the nightly barrage of German bombs had made living in the West End a very unpopular option, so landlords were slashing rents to the bone, and Mr Robert Henry had managed to snap up the little place at a quarter of the usual price. <laughs> In 1962, 20 years after a village in Piccadilly, Madeleine turned her attention in a slightly easterly direction and released Spring on a Soho Street. Again, this is a factual memoir and is a collection of long conversations she had with many Soho residents and business owners about their lives and their histories. Among others, she talks to tailors, delicatessen owners, hat makers, restaurateurs, club owners, most of whom are now long gone, and also with a Miss Belle, manager of the Theatre Girls' Club on Greek Street, which provided basic accommodation for young women employed in West End theatres as chorus girls. These were just two out of at least 30 books by Madeline, or Mrs. Robert Henry, and together they constitute a valuable and detailed record of life in central London in those middle years of the 20th century but who to talk to about this prolific social historian and author. There's much less information about her online than I would have liked, but I did eventually hit gold dust when I managed to track down her son, Bobby, who now lives in Greenwich. Not that Greenwich, though. The Greenwich you can get to on the DLR, but the one in Connecticut. So we had to meet online. And he's no longer called Bobby. He now also goes by the name of Robert. And by complete coincidence, on the day I spoke to him, it happened to be his 84th birthday. To begin with, I asked him to give me some biographical background on his mom, Madeline Henry.
1: My mother was born in Paris. She was born in, in, in 1906, and Uh, Her basic life story is that she uh, was from a very, very humble, uh, working-class milieu. And after her father's death, her mother decided to immigrate from Paris to London because uh, one of her sisters lived in London. She'd married and had had a successful time there, and my mother's mother, my grandmother, was a seamstress, and they were very, very poor, and it was decided that she had a better chance of making a living as a seamstress in London than in Paris. That accounted for the fact that my mother, who I suppose at the time was probably about 15, 16, arrived in London speaking no English whatever and no connections whatever uh, with England other than this aunt of hers who happened to have made a success of her stay in London. So my mother goes to to school uh, for a very short period of time, and then she grows up. She gets a job as a stenographer, and she eventually makes her way into working at the Savoy Hotel, as a manicurist, and I don't know the exact sequence of events, but uh, still very young, she meets my father, uh, who happens to be going by the Savoy Hotel, uh, they fall in love, and eventually uh, she marries my father.
0: He was also called Robert Henry. Right.
1: So that's how my mother becomes connected with England. Uh, My father is a journalist. He's a writer. He loves writing. During the 30s, he works for a a, a whole string of uh, London newspapers. My father is a a newspaper man. He has that in his blood, and he loves writing. And then toward the end of the 30s, well, just before the war, I'm now coming into the picture. My mother is going to have a child, which is me, and my father my father had decided that he would like to have a house in France. He buys a house in Normandy, which uh, I presently still own. And my mother goes over there with her mother, and I'm born in this place in 1939, while my father in London is still working as a journalist. Uh, the war comes along, the Germans pour over the Maginot line, And my father literally rescues my mother and his child, which is me, in 1940, as the Germans are pouring over, uh, and brings the family back to London. My father at this point has no money. He's penniless. He's just over the age where I guess he cannot be called up. I think he was just about 40 but there is no money around. My father loves writing, so he begins by writing this uh, story about what it had been like buying this uh, little place in Normandy, and the whole tragedy of the war, and coming back to London with, uh, with nothing. And so that, that, that in a sense, is, is a beginning of that literary career, because my mother it is contributing to the story behind the, this house that was in Normandy. My mother had a gift for going around and chatting with people, and she loved writing things down, but well, she just loved interviewing people in their daily life, social history in the making. She writes up this stuff. My mother is French, okay? She's very, very French, and she writes everything in French. And my father, who is a wordsmith who loves the English language, uh, has coming to him all this uh, original material uh, based on conversations with people. And my mother can do something that he can't do. In other words, she can tell a story, uh, she can relate to people, she can get them to tell them all kinds of things because uh, she's a good listener. And what my father eventually does, and these are my words, he it, it's it's not so much translation, it's it's transliteration. It, it, it's it's taking what she did and making it into literary English. She becomes his source, and it becomes a literary partnership that evolves over time. The farm, they call them the farm books was successful. Uh, They also wrote um, books which you're familiar with, A Village in Piccadilly, which was, again, the same kind of social history style, what life was like during the plates, during the war. So they're they're writing this up. And uh, my father's publishing under his name. I mean, he's the writer of this. He's using my mother as a source. but He's writing it. And then around 1947, She writes her life story, which will become a book called The Little Madeleine, which was really their first, I would call it, striking success. It was a book, society choice. That was my mother's voice recalling her very interesting and difficult childhood. My father took that. She wrote in French. It was all written in French. I mean, I remember she she used to write this out on French exercise books, and my father takes it. And makes it into what became a, a, at that time a, a bestseller uh, autobiography of a girl, young girl, brought up in, in in Paris before World War One. How was her English? My mother was fluent in English, but she she spoke it with a very strong accent. Okay, and she you know she didn't naturally sort of sit down and write stuff in English. So she, she was French. She was French. She was very gifted in the sense that she never been to school beyond, I would say, the age of 16. And she wrote French flawlessly. I was brought up in French culture, so I understand how difficult that is. She had a a gift for language. And then, well, I had this gift of of taking it and uh, the word that I was looking for, transposing it, like a a musical score. So a a
0: character, an interviewee, will talk for maybe three quarters of a page, a whole page, almost like it's a soliloquy. But you get the impression that it's it's a condensed version. It's an edited version of what was a two-way conversation. It,
1: it's a transposed version. And if if, if if you read it, if I read it carefully, I, I also see traces of my father's voice. Do you? That's interesting. Yeah, I knew, yeah. He also loved social history, but from a more, he was not an academic, but a more academic point of view. So you, you'll, you'll notice there were some mixtures there. It's a literary partnership. It does have
0: quite a unique feel to it. And I, I, when I was reading, reading, I was thinking, is this because it's somebody writing in a second language, or? But this is—you've you, explained it really—the fact that it is a—it's a partnership. Yeah,
1: it yes. is. So, and then, uh, and then a very, very—you know—very complicated process. My father begins to publish books under her name as opposed to his name. There's a transition there, and there's a complicated period where. Uh, he goes back and and some of the farm books, which were clearly written by him, but with inputs from my mother, that were originally published under his name. He sort of republishes them under her name. I mean, there's a. There's a whole complicated stuff. It is
0: incredibly complicated, yeah. I couldn't work it out. Because
1: sometimes it's Robert Henry, sometimes it's Mrs. Robert Henry. There's a a person called uh, Roger Greaves who is actually writing a book. He's written a book about my mother, about that literary partnership and... Roger has gone into this in, in quite some detail. And, um, you know, I think literary partnerships uh, have an interest in of their own right because they're they're interesting. Yeah. So uh,
0: what are your—I presume you don't remember your flight from Normandy under Nazi
1: bullets. No, but I, it was uh, woven into the family history. I mean, my my grandma, French grandmother, who I was very close to because when I went back to live in France after the war— i developed a very close relationship with her, and there's this story of her handing me over to my mother on the quay of Saint-Malo, where the boat left to go to England, and she couldn't come on board because the residence permit that she had to live in London had expired. And it was because my parents had asked her to come over to France to look after me as a baby that she had lost her right to live in England. So that was a sort of a traumatic story for the family, a a tragedy, because uh, in in the 1940s, there was absolutely no contact uh, between somebody living in London and somebody living in France uh, during the whole uh, German occupation are your earliest memories of living in Shepherd Walk, Sh- Shepherd Market, sorry, and that period? Yeah, I, I'm very interested in the phenomenon of memory. I think I think my, my analogy is like a, a multi-layered onion. You remember not just what you have experienced yourself. You remember what people have said about absolutely, it. yeah. And you also, every time you recall an event, that recall in itself adds. To another layer to your memory. Yeah. So when you ask me what my earliest memory is, the more honest answer is what is the earliest event that my composite memory developed over the last 84 years is? We lived in this in this tiny, pokey uh, apartment uh, flat in the middle of London and I guess my parents must have gotten it in 1940 and I joke, a Mayfair flat was the cheapest place you could live in the whole of England because (laughs) nobody wanted to live in Mayfair. So my parents had no money. It was the cheapest place to, you could possibly live. They went on living in that place until, um, they retired to France, which was, uh, the year before I, my wife and I got married, which is 1964. So they lived in this spooky place. For 24 years. So you ask me, what's my earliest memory? Well, having been associated with this place uh, from 1940 to 1964, it, it, it's a layer. But I do I do remember it. I mean, I do remember. And, you know, it was tough. I had no school friends because there were no children in central London during the Blitz. And um, my parents kind of homeschooled me. They didn't want me to go to school. There were probably no schools available anyway. And you know, it was a, it was tough. Like we had a dog, and we went out in Green Park, and I remember all those things. But you know, I also remember the fact that it was, uh, it was not an easy life. And what made them choose to live
0: in the middle of the West End? Presumably, um, evacuation was an option, or, or perhaps it
1: wasn't because of you being oh, French the, or not yeah, being French. My, my father was a Londoner. You know, he'd always worked for London newspapers. Um, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express. He he was a he was a Londoner, and I don't think he was going to sort of go and live in some province. And I think it just came to him naturally, you know. And we're going to live in London. This is my home. Why should I leave? Yeah, why should I leave? You know. Yeah.
0: it sounds like people did take sensible precautions, but still. Quite a large risk as well, you know, because it doesn't
1: matter if you put your bed in a cage like some neighbors did. I, I remember, I have a memory of holding my father's hand, watching a few streets away a building crumble under German bombs. I mean, I have that memory, whether it's genuine or not, I don't know, but I do remember that. Amazing.
0: I just finished off this morning Spring in the Soho Street. I feel like her or their style has... Uh, Evolved and become more established over the twenty years between Village in Piccadilly and um uh, spring street in soho and this this idea of going to people doing an interview with them and then kind of um, transposing it as you say has become a real kind of marker of their style and it it feels like a really important bit of social history documentation the the, the actual names and actual locations and sometimes very specific about it stood. On some such a corner opposite, yes. you know, some such a yeah. cinema. Why why did I not know about this? Because it's a sort of thing
1: that does interest me a lot. It, it feels actually a bit overlooked. Do you feel that as well? Yes, I, I, I think. Let, let me make a, a, a comment. One of the things that preoccupied my father, it was a sort of a hobby on his part, was to take books that had been written and to send them. To, to institutions, to universities, for example, and a lot of them in the United States. And my, my father's idea, and uh, it was something he actually mentioned to me, was that this was indeed valuable social history. But what he was doing, he was sort of putting it out there in the care of institutions. And one day, one day, this would be rediscovered. So he was to use a modern expression, he was—he had as a hobby in his retirement kind of constituting a time capsule. I think that's exactly what it feels like when you read it. I thought it was crazy. I still do. But that's what he did. So I'm answering your question by saying, I, I think my father had that feeling that what they had done would one day be discovered or rediscovered. That's what particularly Spring of the Soho Street feels like. It feels like,
0: you know, the fact that she says names and she mentions things like The type of product that was being sold. So it's fascinating to see that that kind of those sort of social changes. I mean, and the fact that it's restricted to this, you know, one square kilometer. That's right. That's right. It concentrates it and makes it kind of traceable and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh,
1: But what it's worth, I think my father had that awareness that uh, he was um, contributing to a document that would be of value from a social history point of view and the past generations would look back on it.
0: So Mrs. Robert Henry is not just one person called Madeline, but a literary partnership between Madeline and her husband. This is, as I understand, explained more fully in an as yet to be published book called Reading Madeline* by Roger Greaves which is due to be published sometime in the near future. And Roger is just one of the many people I approached when I was researching this episode all of whom were absolutely as helpful as they could possibly have been. I put a list of them in the show notes at sohobitespodcast.com. But we're not finished with Robert over there in Connecticut quite yet, and even though I was impinging upon his 84th birthday – I had more questions for him, this time on the subject of his brief period as a child film star in the late 1940s. Robert, or Bobby as he was called back then, appeared at the age of eight years old in the 1948 thriller The Fallen Idol. He plays Philippe, son of the French ambassador to London, and he has a very close relationship with the embassy's butler, Mr. Baines, played by a very young Ralph Richardson. Philippe is a lonely child in a foreign city whose parents are often away, so his friendship with the avuncular Mr. Baines is the central relationship in his life, unless you count the one he has with MacGregor, his tiny pet snake. The very adult goings-on in the embassy are largely seen and interpreted through the immature eyes of Philippe, and when he witnesses what he assumes is a heinous crime, he feels compelled to protect his only friend. The Fallen Idol was directed by Carol Reed and written by Graham Green. It was the film they made together that directly preceded The Third Man. As well as Ralph Richardson, it starred Sonia Dresdell as his wife, the nasty Mrs. Baines, Michelle Morgan as Julie, a younger woman with whom Baines is romantically involved, and it features Jack Hawkins as a police officer and a young Dora Bryan as Rose, a tart with a heart who briefly befriends Philippe. The film received multiple nominations and won several awards, including the BAFTA in 1949 for Best British Film. So this was a major movie with international reach, and right at the heart of it was little Bobby Henry, who spoke English with a French twang and despite never having acted before, gives a moving performance as an innocent, isolated child caught up in some very dark, very adult events. I didn't want to keep Robert from his birthday cake for too much longer, as he'd been so kind to talk to me at such length, but I did want to hear about that film. So I asked him to tell me about the circumstances that led to him being cast in The Fallen Idol. How did he become an eight-year-old film star?
1: Well, chance events, it's a, it's a longish story, but since you've asked the question, I'll go into it a little bit. My parents, made, in this particular case, published under my father's name, uh, published a book called A Village in Piccadilly, which is uh, about life during the war. And in that book, there's a there's a picture of a little boy with the family dog. And the context is that Carol Reed, who is the director, who was the director of The Faun Idol, and Graham Greene, who had written a short story in the 1930s that was called The Basement Room, had gotten together to develop a screenplay for a story that was loosely based on this 1930s short story. The telling of the story. In order to tell it properly, you had to have a house with a very, very large entrance hall and a sweeping staircase, because the story is highly visual and is very much dependent on images of a body rolling down that staircase. So in order to make a movie out of this story, it was essential. They'll have a house with a sweeping staircase and then below a basement. The two of them, I guess Carol Reed in particular, decided that they wanted the setting of this film to be contemporary. The short story was based in the early 1930s. They didn't want to make it a period piece. They wanted to set it in the present. The problem was that in 1947, there were very, very few English families who could afford to live in that kind of house with a sweeping staircase in central London. And so they decided, well, why don't we have the setting of this in an embassy? Because then that gives us freedom to have a a huge entrance hall and this wonderful marble staircase, so we'll set it in an embassy. But if they were going to set it in an embassy, then they needed to find a child who hopefully spoke fluently, but did so with a strange accent, which would befit the fact that that in the story, the child is the son of the ambassador and his wife. And so they say, well, how are we going to find such a child? And somebody on the... I guess it was uh, Alexander Corder's staff or somebody who knew um, Carol Reed said, well, I've just been reading this book. And there's this little kid uh, whose picture is in the book. And from the context, uh, he's brought up in a French-speaking family but living in London. Why don't you call the publisher and find out whether this little kid might uh, be ideal for this particular and that's exactly what happened so it was pure pure chance
0: amazing i mean that's that really is a one of the million stories isn't it a couple of times you've i've heard you say that you were blown away by the fact that the marble staircase was actually made of plywood and oh yeah and I, I mean
1: you <laughs> i would i the book i wrote i i make a big deal about that and uh to me, that, that's a huge thing because people ask me, well, you know, what did you get out of this film? You were a little kid, uh, eight years old, nine years old. What do you get out of this whole thing? And I, I think what I got out of this whole thing was, was an understanding very early on that fiction, that imagination is a way of entering into a deeper reality. That's why we read novels. That's why we're fascinated by narratives. It's all about entering into a deeper reality, and the fact that this uh, marble staircase was made of plywood, to me, it came across as a sort of a revelation. Well, this is more real than the real thing. It's made of plywood. <laughs> Does that make any sense?
0: And there was just an ordinary set, wasn't? There? I mean, a big, big set. So oh, no, the presumably...
1: pretty elaborate. Oh no, it was an elaborate set because you had the basement. And you had the whole uh, superstructure together with rooms above. Oh no, no, this was uh, this was pretty impressive. It was all made of plywood, but it was impressive. It was at uh, Shepperton Studios near Heathrow uh, Airport. So the the upper rooms and the basement room were they actually below and
0: above, or were they just sort of oh, built yeah, side by we side? It was a huge set. Oh, wow. So it was it in like was a house or half a house.
1: Beautifully done. I mean, one of the things that just, just blew my mind, I didn't give a damn about all these famous people. Uh, what I was fascinated by were all these carpenters building this thing. I mean, it was incredible. It was Disney before Disney, you know? And talking to the famous people, I mean, putting aside the fact that you had a cuddle with Dora
0: Bryan, which many Soho Bites listeners would uh, be jealous of.
1: Well, um, well she was, she was a darling was she was she was the only person who uh, i met in my later life who i was able to have a, a sort of a wonderful conversation with i mean everybody else had disappeared but but she was there and uh, you know we met about i guess it was about 20 years ago before she died and she was a wonderful person absolutely right how oh, lovely
0: so you didn't continue any kind of friendship with ralph in no, later no,
1: years now. No. Look, 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 Dom. These, these people were all doing jobs. You know, this, this, this is nine to five. You're dealing with people who are wondering what their next gig is going to be, uh, how they're going to make a living next year. Everybody is focused on their career. They show up in the morning. It was a highly professional relationship. Dora Bryan was a sweetie. She, of course, had a very short role. It was a lovely role, but it was a very short role in the movie. The other person who came across to me as a child, as a real person, was Sonia Dresdell. And the, the irony in that is that in the movie, she's the personification of evil. Wicked Witch of the West. She, exactly. She's the personification of evil. But in, in real life, she was terrific. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I mean, she was the one person who sort of really treated me as if I was a human being. It was lovely. So presumably you weren't
0: aware of the stature of Ralph Richardson and Carol Reed and all these people. Oh, they yeah. were just like
1: I'm an eight-year-old, and yeah. i an... and, and and look, Dom, we're all doing a job. Absolutely, and, yeah. You know, people ask me again, what was my experience of this? is my first job? Mm. You know, you got up in the morning, you had to show up. You know,
0: I mean, I can barely remember being eight.
1: What about McGregor? Did you did you stay friends well, with I him? you ask me about McGregor. <laughs> uh, he, was a, he was a grass snake. You know, I I had been. Uh, Brought up and I, you know, by then I I, I lived a couple of years in in, in France and the countryside. I mean, I was used to animals. Everybody asked me, you know, was McGregor real? So sure, sure, he was real. He was a brass snake, and uh, I kind of nice McGregor, you know. I like animals. I, Roman, there, Roman there was Roman all McGregor. this symbolism, you know, the Graham Grease stuff about uh, the snake in 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 Paradise and all that stuff. Well, forget it. I I was not aware of any of that stuff.
0: I hadn't thought about that to be honest
1: oh yeah I mean you've got the you know the catholic hang up stuff with Graham Green and that's reflected in the snake at least that's my interpretation of it right okay well I'm going to look further into that I hadn't, I hadn't thought of well, that well I, really. I mean that's just my this, I'm, I think symbolically that's my you know that, okay. that's, that's the way I look at it you won't take my word for it you only did one film after that
0: as far as I'm aware yeah. unless you did and some, pop. was that a flop because I've not been able to find it I've, I've read the, the praise it
1: sounds quite interesting it's a flop. It didn't work out. It was fun in the sense that it was shot in Austria, in Vienna and Tyrol. I mean, the, the, it, it was wonderful from that point of view, but it, it just did not work out. It was a, it was a flop. And, uh, you know, in a sense, I, I was growing older at that point, and it was an experience. Uh, I, I sensed that it was failure. You know, I sensed that life is not as, life doesn't go like this. You sensed that during the shooting of the film, that it wasn't working? Well, more so afterwards. I realized okay. it had not worked out. Did you and your parents decide that you weren't going to be, be an actor? Yeah, I mean, I think probably my parents decided that it would be more sensible for me to sort of go to school and lead a more normal life. I mean, I certainly wasn't party to that, Dom. It just, from, as far as I'm concerned, that's just how life happened. I'm glad it did happen that way, but I, that's in retrospect.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have had a very unusual childhood, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I have. I mean, it, it was it was tough because uh, then going to school, uh, you know, the, the the kid in the schoolyard who's different gets picked on. And you were picked on for having been in this film, or for yeah, I was picked on for being different. You know? Yeah, it was it was, it was not pleasant. It was a an extra to be in this movie and to be associated with. Parents who earned their living in a very unconventional way. This was very unconventional. It was a difficult experience to come down from. You know, it took me a lot of reflection to sort of. Um, it was not. It was not an easy transition. It was not an easy transition. Are you talking about your early adulthood? The, the transition took place? It took a lifetime to sort of deal with it.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah. So if you're somebody like Michael Jackson, or one of these people who have been groomed from day one, that must be, you kind of see why they buckle under the pressure, you know? Oh, well,
1: absolutely. It's a, uh, you know, I, I, I liken it to um, being high on a drug, and there's no easy way to come off a high. No, absolutely. There's no easy way. Whatever that is, there's pain. At what stage did people stop recognizing
0: you? Because obviously your appearance changes as you go into your teens and whatever. And
1: well, you know, they stopped recognizing me as I grew up, obviously, and moved outside a context where I would be recognized. But it is no exaggeration to say it pursued me all my life. You know, here we are, uh, Dom. T- today happens to be my eighty-fourth birthday. Okay. Happy birthday not, I had no idea know, and I begin the day by talking with you which I gives me a great deal of pleasure and I'm delighted to do but this thing is still pursuing me last night I had a, a I was asked to join a, a Zoom of a a film group in the University of Chicago and it, they were delightful people and we were on zoom with a professor of film at the university of chicago we had a lovely conversation but you know they were I'm, I'm i'm perfectly happy i i love being with as you can see i'm very happy talking about it i love being with people but it's weird
0: many many thanks to mr robert aka bobby henry for coming on soho bites robert's book called Through Grown-Up Eyes, came out 10 years ago and is his account of his experience of starring in The Fallen Idol and the many decades since in which he worked to come to terms with the effects of this brief moment in the full heat of publicity. It's well worth a read, and I have linked to it in the show notes at sohobitespodcast.com. And a week or so after I spoke to Robert, I suddenly remembered a question that I had meant to ask him but had idiotically completely forgotten. For most of the fallen idol, Philippe's parents are not around, both being away on diplomatic business. Their presence, particularly that of his mother, is sorely missed by the young boy who's been through some harrowing days. In the final seconds of the film, the front door opens and in walks Philippe's mother.
1: Philippe, your mother. Bien vite, mon chéri, bien vite.
0: Everything is now going to be all right again. The actress playing this tiny part is not credited, so was this, I wondered, Bobby's real-life mother? I asked Robert by email if this was the case and he confirmed that this was indeed his mum, Madeline Henry, and said that she was delighted to have been paid 10 pounds, nearly 500 pounds in today's money, in cash for this one line. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much apologies for the interruption and back to the episode A while back while making an episode of a different podcast, I posted this question on social media If you're under the age of 50 have you ever heard of Jesse Matthews?
1: The world is lyrical because a miracle has brought my lover to me
0: Although a few nerdy film types had heard of her, the vast majority of people, as I suspected, had not. In case you too don't know who Jessie Matthews was, she was probably Britain's biggest film star of the 1930s, a screen icon, a sublime dancer, a singer, and an actor of comedic greatness. And although fashions have changed in the intervening 90 years or so, and her style seems dated today, she was in her time, in the words of her friend Dirk Bogart, a dazzling star who took top billing in several lavish, high-budget musicals. (laughs) This immense popularity came about despite the fact that even before she'd made the move from stage star to film star, her name had been dragged through the courts and the mud as the correspondent, the other woman, in a sensational divorce case that consumed the drooling tabloid press. She suffered the humiliation of intimate love letters being read aloud in a public courtroom and was slated by the judge in the most offensive way. The scandal was so big that when cast members of a film she was starring in a few years later were being introduced to the King and Queen after a gala performance, she, Jessie Matthews, the Scarlet Woman, was not permitted to meet them. But why are we talking about her on Soho Bites? Why are we dedicating three episodes of the show to her story? Well, because Jessie Matthews was a child of Soho. She was born into an extremely poor family above a butcher shop at 94 Berwick Streets, one of 16 children, not all of whom survived, and she lived in the area for most of her childhood. Her father worked on Berwick Street Market and could often be found drinking the day's earnings away in the blue posts, meaning that his enormous family often had to get by on bread and dripping. That a skinny, undernourished child from Soho, whose family were only ever inches above the breadline, should become such a luminous star, is incredible. Tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. what is the your dancing shoes on the will shine. Despite the early scandal and tabloid vilification, Jesse still became massively popular all over the world, earning the nickname the Dancing Divinity. She received several offers to work in Hollywood, with some of the biggest names of the day, including Fred Astaire. And when the Second World War began in 1939, Jessie was arguably at the height of her powers. For some reason, though, her career did not pick up again when the war came to an end. In fact, it's not just that it didn't pick up again, her career completely bombed. She picked up some non-starring roles in some stage shows over the next few decades, but the glory days of the 1930s were never to return. There are many possible reasons for this turnaround in her fortunes, but the most likely, in the opinion of this humble podcaster, is that through those horrific wartime years and in the grinding post-war austerity period, her style of performance and the glitzy, glamorous, lush nature of the films in which she appeared no longer suited the more serious times in which the country now found itself, and she simply fell out of favour. She wasn't the only performer to experience a decline like this in the post-war period, but she was the most high profile, and her vertiginous fall from grace was well documented at the time. Then, as now, the tabloid press loved to kick a person when they're down, and she suffered years of public humiliation as each of her several attempts to revive her career came to naught. Away from the stage and screen, her life was tumultuous, and her mental health was always on a knife edge. She was first married at the age of 19, and went on to have a further two husbands. All three of her marriages ended in rancorous divorce. In a 1969 interview, when asked if she would do it all again, Jessie stated that if she had known how it was going to turn out, she would not have stepped onto a stage for all the tea in China.
1: Record, over my shoulder,
0: it all. In our three-part Jessie Matthews special coming up in the autumn, I'll be looking at her life in detail, talking to several people who have studied her in depth. None of Jessie's films are actually set in Soho, they are much too grand for that, but as far as we're concerned, if it's a Jessie Matthews film, it's a Soho film, so we'll be talking about a different one in each episode. To follow this story of Soho's very own fallen idol, please consider subscribing to the show if you haven't done so already. You can do that through one of the many podcast apps listed at SohoBytesPodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can do that on Twitter. The handle is at BytesOho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. And please consider supporting the show either by way of a kind review at SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or by contributing a couple of quid to help cover our costs at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Sohabites are produced by me, Damdalagi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. I'm off on my holidays next week to the burning centre of Cerberus, the heat wave that's currently ravaging most of Europe, so I've packed my sun hat. But if I survive, I'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, take care and bye for now.